With that, friends, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7. You can do it in a hard copy of the Bible if you have one, or do it digitally if you have a copy of that available, uh, or it's also in the downloadable bulletin that you have in front of you. Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Today is the third out of five Sundays in the season of Lent. Uh, and I've, I've said to our folks, we're not going to do anything weird in the season of Lent, but we use the liturgical calendar at Word and Table PCA to help shape our worship. And our worship forms how we live. So uh, I've said before, we delight in the light so that we can endure in the dark. Now, the, the delight in the light was the season of Epiphany that we were in a few weeks ago where we were rejoicing to see Christ revealed in many passages of Scripture uh, and now we're in this season of Lent. We're learning, our worship is teaching us what it means to endure in the dark, which seems strangely appropriate today, given that we have to do this medium because of a worldwide pandemic that's, uh, that has broken out. So we've been in this desert theme the last few weeks. Jesus was tempted in the desert. Uh, Abram was called to go across the desert. For those of you who aren't normally with us, if you want to hear some of those messages, uh, you can find our podcast uh, online and, and catch up with what we're doing. But this week, we're going to see that God's people are looking for water in the desert. Now look, you might want a glass of water next to you as I read this passage and as I preach this sermon. It, it, as I was studying it, it definitely made me thirsty. So here now, Exodus chapter 17, verses 1 through 7, which is God's word, eternally true. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with you with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord among us or not? And now pray with me. Now, Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, you who are our rock and our redeemer. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your law and grow in us 30, 60, and 100-fold. Amen. So when was the last time you were really thirsty? I mean, can you remember it? Uh, maybe it was after a long run. Uh, or was it after a really hard workout? Or maybe you just got really busy one day, you were out running errands, and all of a sudden uh, you felt that, parchment, uh, that parched feeling in your throat and realized you hadn't had a sip of anything for at least four or five hours. 
What does thirst do to you? Uh, you know, that moment when you swallow and there's no spit to soothe your throat, uh, or that moment where your tongue moves over your teeth and there's, there's no spit, uh, and you swallow a second time and you feel that slight crack in the back of your throat. Uh, suddenly, you would do anything in that moment to get something, just anything that would wet your whistle. What does thirst do to you? Uh, you know, we get thirsty for a lot of things that won't actually satisfy us. Uh, the most obvious example of something might be like uh, the person who is adrift at sea and uh, they guzzle down salty ocean water not realizing uh, that if they don't desalinate that water that they're going to hasten their own death lost at sea. Um, or the extreme alcoholic who actually dies of dehydration while they're uh, wetting their whistle with booze. Uh, they're actually drying up their brain with toxic levels of alcohol. Many times, uh, our body signals to us and we think that we're hungry when actually we're thirsty. And if you don't believe me, the next time you feel a little hunger pang before you reach for something to eat, just drink a 12-ounce glass of water and wait five minutes and see if I'm not right, that you weren't, uh, you weren't necessarily hungry, you were, th you were thirsty. We're not the only people who uh, were thirsty for something that cannot satisfy. In this passage in Exodus 17, uh, the Israelites are taken into the desert, uh, the wilderness uh, that we've also called it by God. God leads them into this place where there's no water to drink. And so the people are thirsty for water, but they're so thirsty for water that they forget how to be thirsty for God. And in fact, uh, it leads them, their thirst leads them to call God into question. So now, there is a subtle but important difference between asking God a question and calling God into question. And we're going to see that here. The difference between asking God a question and calling God into question. Moses is going to ask God a question, but the people Moses is leading are going to call God into question. And for us, we must trust God in the desert because He is the one who provides what we're actually thirsty for. And we're going to see how God provides for His people here when we understand the problem, when we understand the solution, and when we understand the transformation. Okay? So three things. A problem, a solution, and transformation. So now, this little seven-verse story would be easy to miss if it didn't get so much press in other parts of Scripture. I mean, this passage is referred to in Psalm 95, our Psalm of the Day that we used earlier. And it's referred to uh, twice in the New Testament, in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4. And there's a similar incident, uh, a similar incident to this in the Old Testament book of Numbers, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 13. Uh, but that incident is different than this one. It's different in what it teaches. And I mention it to you so you don't mix the two together, you don't conflate them. So what does this passage teach? Well, first, look at who is involved. I mean, the more I read the Old Testament, especially in Hebrew, the more I'm struck by how carefully crafted these narratives are. God is mentioned by His covenant name, the Lord, or Yahweh, six times. And so is Moses. He's mentioned six times. And the people are mentioned seven times. This is a story about God Moses, and the people. And second, look at what it's about. It's a story about water and thirst. We see in verse 1, the basic 
problem. At the camp in Rephidim, there's no water for the people to drink. That's the basic problem. But don't miss how they ended up in this situation. Uh, It says in the same verse, they had pulled up stakes, they had made their departure, and they did it at the command that came to them from the mouth of God. So unapologetically, the people are led by God into this place where there is no water. But before there can be an explanation of why God might do that, verse 2 jumps in with the quarreling of the people with Moses. Now, the Hebrew word there for quarrel is rib, and I'm only pointing that out to you because it's going to become part of the name of this incident throughout time. Meribah is the, is the title that Moses in verse 7 gives this incident in this place. This is the place. This is the place where the people said, Give us water and we will drink. Give us water and we will drink. They have a problem. But notice Moses' problem with their problem. The water problem is actually compounded with their problem with Moses, their quarrel with him. And Moses says something very striking. He says, why are you all quarreling with me? Why do you test the Lord? In other words, Moses is saying, look, when you quarrel with me, your leader about this problem, you'd better be careful because you're actually putting God to the test. You're actually calling him into question and you don't want to do that. Now look, this doesn't mean that we should never call any leaders uh, into question, especially church leaders. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that. But it, here, it's very clear that Moses is the leader of Israel, that Moses was appointed by God to be the leader of Israel, um, and that Moses wasn't seeking this position for himself. In fact, if you read earlier in the book of Exodus, Moses tried really hard to get out of leading the people of God. So we see from the passage that the grumbling of the people here is not an honest question. In fact, it's no question at all. Give us water and we will drink. But it gets even worse in verse 3. It says in verse 3, they thirsted there and they grumbled to Moses. Listen to their grumbling. Is this why you brought us up from Egypt? Now, wait a minute. Is Moses the one who brought them up from Egypt? Do you see the conundrum? They're talking to Moses. Moses was their leader, but they're calling God into question. God, every other place in Exodus, is the one who brought them up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. God did this work. But even the most charitable read that we give the people here uh, ends up with this crossover between calling God into question when they're calling the leader that God appointed into question. They can't say, in essence, hey, we're happy with God, but you stink, Moses. Uh, There's no room for that here. When you question, when you call Moses into question, you're questioning God as well. And they say, you brought us up to kill us, to kill our sons, to kill our economy. Now, okay, the ESV brings that across as livestock, to kill our livestock, but the wider meaning of that word makes some sense here, doesn't it? How are we going to make a living as God's people here in the desert if all our livestock die off? Our economy, the way that we live, is going to wither up. Now let me ask you, have you ever followed God into the desert and found yourself thirsty? And have you ever grumbled against God's appointed leader? Have you ever grumbled against what God is allowing in the economy? Now, I know some of you are going to say, no, I don't grumble about the economy. Money matters like that at the national level or way over my head. 
But what about your personal economy? Uh, has God ever led you to a new place in life? Uh, perhaps a new job, a new place where your way of life was turned upside down. And maybe money got tighter when you thought it was going to get fatter. Um, maybe you thought some things were going to be more abundant that actually ended up not being that way. Maybe you thought you were going to get to live in a particular place, but the house fell through. Maybe you thought you were going to have particular friends to hang out with, uh, but they aren't there or they weren't your real friends. But for one reason or another, you get to one of these places and all those things in your personal economy uh, are stripped away and you just found yourself thirsty. Your personal economy dried up. Now in that place, who did you quarrel with? In that place, are you putting God to the test? Are you calling God into question? Now, because our problem is the same as the Israelites' problem, we need to pay attention to this. Um, our problem is that in our thirst, we're tempted to harden our hearts and call God into question. What are you thirsty for today? Now look, I'm not talking about world peace or a disease-free world. I mean, we all want good things. There are good things that we all want. But I'm wondering, what's getting canceled in your world today uh, that could be causing you to call God into question? In other words, is there an ultimate thing in your life that if it dries up, like a job or a relationship or an opportunity, that when that dries up, you might just blame God. You might think that He brought that good thing in, in your life just to tease you and then to kill you with it instead. Are you calling God into question? If so, that thing, that ultimate thing is your mariba. Right? The problem, this is a problem that's rough for all of us. But now that we're looking at the problem, we're going to take a second to look at the solution. And the solution is actually somewhat simple. It's to bring our honest questions to God, who will listen to us, and who will give us the next step in the process. So that's what happens with Moses. I love uh, the authenticity and honesty of Moses in verse 4. Moses cries to the Lord. Uh, as all his stress from this situation gathers in the pit of his stomach, it comes together and it shoots out of his mouth. And, you know, that happens to me a lot. I'm a verbal processor. Um, Moses has these few conversations with the people. But don't you reckon that Moses, uh, of all the people that Moses might have been thirsty in this place too? I mean, it doesn't say in the scripture that there was water for the people, but Moses had plenty. No, uh, God led the leader and the leader leads the people. And God led the leader and the people into a camp where there was no water. So the thirst the stress, the accusations, they all pile on. They're going to pop out of this guy. Now the question is, when are they going to pop out? Where are they going to pop out? How are they going to pop out? Uh, honestly, for myself, my own stress, when it piles on in the pit of my stomach and it's going to pop out, it, it pops out in the wrong direction, in the wrong place. It pops out all over the people closest to me. Uh, the humans that I love the most, my family, right? But it doesn't pop out in gentle questions. Uh, it pops out in demands, and it pops out in accusations, and it pops out in commands. But Moses has this great moment in verse 4, and we need to pay attention to it. It's a great moment, not because he makes an eloquent speech, 
Not because he's well put together and calm. Not because he somehow tamps down all that stress and just puts a smile on anyway. Moses has a great moment in verse 4 because his crying out goes in the right direction, both in the who it goes to and in how it goes to him. So the who of Moses crying out is that it goes to God, not the people around him who are putting pressure on them. Now, sure, Moses warned those around him with some pretty hard questions, and they were the right questions. Uh, When Moses is at his most stressed, though, the who that he goes to is God. But then there is how Moses goes to him. Moses asks God a question, and Moses asks the right question. What shall I do regarding this people? Now, Moses is really stressed out because he says, a few of them would stone me. And and that's not actually a metaphor for Moses, right? The easiest way back then to be impeached was to end up uh, a bloody wreck under a pile of rocks. That That was a literal thing. But even then, Moses doesn't come with an accusatory tone to God. He's genuinely asking in the midst of his stress, what would you have me do in this situation, Lord? Do you know it's okay to be emotionally stressed when you pray to God? Do you know that God hears you just as much when you grit your teeth as you do when you use calm and holy-sounding language? You know, I think, honestly, some of us don't pray because we think that we have to have it all put together uh, in order to come to God. But does Moses look calm and composed and put together here? How does Moses come? He comes in reality with humility. The reality is that Moses has no idea why the Israelites and himself are in this situation other than the fact that God led them there. And Moses comes in humility knowing that he in and of himself has no skill or ability to get the people out of this predicament. So Moses knows he needs to hear from God to know what to do next. So no matter how he's feeling in the moment, he knows that God, who saved them out of the Red Sea, is not going to let them dry up and die in the desert. He's not going to leave his people for dead. So how do you go to God? Do you go to him stressed but trusting and ask him to give you what you need next? Or are you avoiding God because maybe someone made you think, maybe it was a pastor, maybe it was a parent or a church leader, made you think that you have to be put together and calm in order to get an appointment with God. That's not true. You can come to God stressed and trusting. They're not mutually exclusive. God gives Moses the next step in the solution in verse 5. And uh, it just, it sounds kind of weird, right? Pass, take, take and go. It kind of sounds like a football or a basketball play, right? Pass and take and take and go. Uh, Pass before the people. The people need to see Moses. Take some of the elders of Israel. Moses is not the only leader in Israel. The people need to see him and they need to see the other leaders as well. And, oh, Moses Do you remember that staff of yours? Yes, the the one you use to strike the stream. Uh, Yes, the stream, of course, means the Nile River in Egypt. That staff, that river, that mighty act of salvation. Moses, I want you to take that staff in your hand. 
Now, did Moses part the waters of the Red Sea? No, God did. But God used Moses and his staff in order to do it. Anyway, Moses, take that staff in your hand and go. Look, I told you it was weird, but what can we take away from it? Uh, on the one hand, I think it's connected to what I said before. God, who saved his people through the Red Sea, is not going to let them dry up in the desert now. So there's this little reminder in that phrase, the staff that you use to strike the Nile. Uh, but don't miss that little detail, right? There's a difference between the Red Sea and the Nile. Uh, Moses lifted his staff to part the Red Sea. When he struck the Nile with his staff, it was in another part of Exodus. It was actually in a place where uh, the staff of judgment came down and turned the Nile River to blood. And do you also remember how I said uh, that God's covenant name, the Lord, is used six times in this passage? The next verse, verse 6, is where God is mentioned actually a seventh time. It's when he himself speaks in giving this solution. And in the midst of that, we're going to have to see the transformation that happens, that God brings. God is mentioned a seventh time in this passage. In verse 6, he says, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you will strike the rock with your staff, and water will come out, and the people will drink. Now, Tim Keller is a master preacher. He knows how the Bible gets to Jesus from any passage. And I haven't heard Tim Keller preach on this passage, but a friend of mine uh, in St. Louis actually told me that Tim Keller preached on this. And, and Tim Keller, I'm told, got to Jesus in this passage saying that God let his people put him on trial and struck him in an unjust judgment like Moses strikes the rock and the water of salvation was poured out in Jesus' blood. And when my friend told me uh, about Tim Keller's sermon, I said, of course Tim Keller preached the sermon like this. That's, what that's, that's exactly what Tim Keller always does. That makes perfect sense to me. But is it actually there in the passage? Uh, and the reason I say that is because I know there's a, there's a famous Jewish interpreter who once said that Christians using the Old Testament are sometimes like a guy who steals your watch and then spends 2,000 years telling you what time it is. Uh, and I might have almost accused Tim Keller. Man, I should really be careful because I'm doing this on a live stream. I, not that I think that he's going to hear this, but, but I might have accused Tim Keller of this, except when I read this phrase in the passage. Behold, I will stand before you there. Where? On the rock. What rock? The rock at Horeb. That phrase is weird. When you read it slow enough, it kind of sticks out. And then there's this chain of three verbs, which is what we normally expect in Hebrew stories. They're written with these chains of verbs that, that come out of there. And the important stuff in a Hebrew story is always in these little phrases that stick out. This seventh time that God has mentioned, Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And the staff of Moses, the one that struck the Nile in a judgment on Egypt so that the river turned to blood, that will strike God on the rock so that water will pour out for his people to drink. The same staff of judgment is the staff that turned water to blood and will cause water to come out of the rock. Because you see, transformation happens when we see that Jesus is God who was struck down for us 
so that we can drink the living water found in his blood. Jesus didn't stand on a rock. He was nailed to a cross. He was struck for us with the judgment of God, just like God in this passage stood before his people and was struck with the staff of judgment. But it wasn't a fair trial. God was struck with the dishonest accusations of his people who were complaining about his salvation and they were taking back their trust in him. Sure, Jesus isn't mentioned by name in this passage, yet this passage leaves us with a question that begs for a resolution that only the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ can provide. The Bible does this kind of thing a lot. The last line of a story may be uh, left out. The final question here goes unanswered. And suddenly, it's like an arrow that's shot from the pages of Scripture and lands in my heart. It lands in your heart. Is the Lord in the midst of us or not? How do you answer that question? That's the question of verse 7. And how you handle that is the most important question you'll ever deal with in your life. This is the time for you to bring your question, your honest question, to God. Moses named the place Meribah, like I mentioned before, but he also names the place Massah, which comes from the Hebrew word for test that Moses said to them, why do you test the Lord in verse 2? God's people put him to the test, and it's not a fair test. It's actually a test that he would be right to reverse on them and judge them for it. And yet instead, he stands on the rock, and he is struck unjustly so that his people would have their thirst met. It's there in the passage. You don't need Tim Keller for it. Although I'll say you need eyes to see it though. And Tim Keller has pretty good eyes, I'll have to admit, and he helps me see things like this all the time. But how are your eyes? Are you answering this question? How are you answering this question? Is the Lord in our midst or not? If your answer to the question is no, he's not in the midst of us, then the warning of Psalm 95 verse 8 is for you. Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and as on the day at Massah in the wilderness when your fathers put me to the test, though they had seen my work. What if it's not a hard no? What if maybe this is just maybe a little fuzzy for you? Then I would say look at the other place where this passage is mentioned in Hebrews 3. You know, the book of Hebrews is sort of like a sermon transcript, and in Hebrews 3, verses 5 and 6, uh, the point that the preacher in that passage is making is that Moses was a faithful servant in God's household, but Jesus is a faithful son who is over all of God's household. Jesus is greater. The son is greater than the servant. And then in that same place, uh, the, the preacher in Hebrews quotes from this line of the psalm about not hardening your heart, as in uh, the day and the place at Meribah and Massah. Do not harden your heart, especially in the desert, especially in times of darkness when bitterness is liable to creep up on you. That's the time when you need to see that God is in our midst. We need to bring our most honest questions to God, to cry out to Him, and to be most willing to hear the words of His Son, Jesus. Do you doubt whether God is in your midst? Well, look at Christ and see that God is in your midst. Moses, the servant, cried out to God to get what he needed. 
There's a story about Jesus, the Son of God, crying out to give the people what they needed. Jesus went to a feast of the Jews, and he did something audacious. He stood up in the midst of the people, and he said, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the one who wants to give you what you are deeply thirsty for. The problem is that in our thirst, we're tempted to harden our hearts and call God into question. The solution is to bring our honest questions to God who will listen and who will give us the next step in the process. Transformation happens when we see that Jesus is God who was struck down for us so that we can drink the living water found in His blood. God provides what we need and what we're actually thirsty for in the deepest sense. So let me just ask you, where have you found a God who can take your quarreling and your testing and turn it into living water? Do you have a God who loves you enough to disagree with you, but then to put himself on trial in order to give you eternal life? Look, he is more patient with you than the most patient person in your life. And he is more honest with you, both about your good traits and your bad traits, than you are even with yourself. He doesn't let our pride get the best of us, and he doesn't let our despair dry us up and destroy us. Because he unites us to himself in his death and raises us to life with him in his resurrection. And he loves you more than you could possibly imagine. Will you receive that love today? Let's pray. Oh God, our rock, who stood there in that place at Horeb, so that you would be struck and water would come out and the people would drink. Give us eyes to see your son, Jesus the one who was stricken for our sins on the cross and who gives us his blood and body that we may have the promise of your spirit, your presence in our midst forevermore. Amen.